Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to the Things Observed podcast. And today we have a very special guest who I'm very excited to have on the show. And that is Johnny Vedmore, and he is a contributor to Unlimited Hangout. And you can also find his work on his websites, johnnyvedmore.com and fungimonkey.com. And I know that Fungi Monkey also has a YouTube channel. Is there anywhere else that people can find you, Mr. Vedmore? And how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Luke. I'm really, really happy to to be talking to you and your guys. Um, uh, yeah, there's. I, I mean, I've got a YouTube um, channel as well uh, under Johnny Vedmore, but I've also got a rock fin. I'm, you know, it's. It, I, I'm writing some articles or starting to write articles. I've written my first about Bezos for UK column, but I'm really like I, I, I'm really centered on certain things, uh, an acquired taste, a very much an acquired taste. Um, so, so it it the platforms that I can actually publish things on are limited anyway. Uh, I'm I'm in a great. I I'm, I can't be happier. Unlimited Hangout is such a good platform to be putting out my stuff on, and Whitney Webb is a, a trooper. So I'm happy to be there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I have been very much enjoying your most recent series. You have a bunch of other good stuff on there. I mean, you've got your thing on Klaus Schwab and all his familial ties and stuff like that. I saw the uh, the young leaders of the CFR and the Henry Kissinger stuff and, and all that. Um, and you've been doing good work for uh, a while back. Uh, I, and I've also read a bunch of the stuff that's up on your personal website uh, about a certain Nicole who shall not be named and, um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, and all this stuff. So, I mean, you've been doing good stuff for a long time. And I've found particularly interesting your most recent series of articles that you've titled The Black Hand. And it kind of goes into some of the stuff with the Perfumo Affair and some stuff that is not usually mentioned in the narrative of the Profumo affair and some of the stuff kind of leading up to it. So I guess my first question is what made you decide to start looking into this in the first place and to write about it? When you, when you think about, um, the Profumo affair as an American, it's really uh, from an American perspective, it must be really hard to get excited or enthralled into the idea that the British government once collapsed in on itself and then they replaced it with another government soon after. So everything was all right in the end, you know, uh, uh, oh, there were people, adults having sex with each other during it. Oh no, you know, very naughty, very British. Um, but the Profumo affair actually was a much bigger, it was um, a symptom of a disease that was happening uh, during that period both in Britain and over in the United States. The intelligence services and modern intelligence services, the CIA and uh, MI5, MI6, uh, they were an FBI, uh, they were really really just struggling to form uh, from 1940s after World War II. They were really trying to find their place. And a lot of what they were doing was, in the CIA's case especially, and and, then MI5 uh, and MI6, (laughs) they were were all uh, trying to influence the behavior of not only their enemies, but their allies too. Um, And this became like intelligence battles were about dragging people into 
into conflict, uh, nations into conflict, um, making them think they should fear a certain enemy that is convenient for the other side to fear. Um, And they were using very, I'd say, Leninist tactics to gain um, their, their power in this dynamic. And it's a really interesting time, this formation of the the Western intelligence services. And at first, they were very much uh, head-to-head against each other. But soon this merger that happens, they swallow everything up. Intelligence agencies swallow everything up, all of the people up. They employ everybody. They get everybody. Everybody who's anybody or has a possibility of becoming anybody must be influenced. Uh, Influence is the name of the game. And this is a a fantastic example of it. Where where I started off uh, on it was uh, being asked a question about the influence of intelligence agencies in a craze-owned nightclub called Esmeralda's Barn uh, for Whitney Webb's book, uh, One Nation Under Blackmail. And that that whole area opened up my eyes to loads of different things. Just after the, the time period I'm talking about, comes this Profumo affair, this really raunchy uh, downfall of the British government, which we, we, we'll, of course, talk about later. But there was a story that led up to that, and the story is very much entwined with this intelligence takeover, this creeping monster that is, uh, in a sense, um, a, a, a Leninist form of intelligence agency. I mean, what, what people have to understand is that the, the uh, before the CIA was set up in, like, 1947... The Americans didn't really have uh, a, a real structure for influencing, um, successfully influencing secretively uh, anybody around the place. They would just say out loud what they wanted you to believe, and they'd say why you want to, be, why they want you to believe it, and they'd go around trying to influence like that. But Leninist propaganda was really subversive. It would use secretive methods out loud and in public, uh, really just like a balls out type of ideology. And Willy Munzenberger is someone I talk about uh, in a few interviews. Uh, in nineteen seventeen eighteen, he created Communist Internationals, which was a young communist project. But it's also really around then that the the Soviets really start to infiltrate youth groups, infiltrate organizations, use propaganda methods, use all these different things. The difference difference is with the Soviets is that they would say it out loud. The communists would say out loud, this is what we want you to do and this is why we want you to do it. Uh, But we're going to use these methods to make you think that it's the right thing. And everybody goes, okay, yes, no. And you enter into a state of hyper-normalization. It's like keen for that. The Americans had such a hard time and the British had such a hard time introducing this and didn't really have the need for it until World War Two, So World War Two happened, and this uh, they saw how useful uh, creating these propaganda intelligence machines could be for their power around the world, and that meant they had to form a new, and they were, from 1947 on, they were testing the ground, and they were trying out new things all the time, and by the time we come up to the time of the Perfumo affair in the uh, early 60s, what you've got is this fantastic um, uh group of of intelligence agents that have been now doing it for quite a long time had all come through the war so they were really solid 
thick set characters you know they were they were uh sure and keen in what they were doing and they knew that they just had to do it whatever you know a lot of these guys who were forged during world war ii were like this kissinger was like that you know a lot of these people were forged in the fire who entered into the normal uh, back into normal civilian life and created warfare on the streets you know created a kind of warfare within policy and a kind of warfare within politics and the warfare of intelligence that stayed that never left after the war and it creeped and creeped and creeped and creeped and by what i was documenting in these stories was how the uh, nightclubs and the seedy areas of london uh, became intelligence linked um and intelligence led you you more, more say uh, uh club owners uh, and the like uh, in the london area so at one point it had all been women who had been running all of these clubs these nightclubs in in the most richest parts of london knightsbridge mayfair kensington you know a piccadilly all of these types of really rich places had these nightclubs um and they were all being run by women in the mid 50s and then by the mid uh, by the six, early 60s they had all been taken over by gangsters and then uh, just after they all get taken over by intelligence services and these same people who were taking over all of these clubs are the same people who were behind the entire downfall of the British government. And it was just, it's it, it's got some of the most fantastically rich characters in. And what I found really, really interesting was that when I read over and over again and watched all the things about the Profumo affair, I got this really stale rundown of what happened. It's like the newspapers at the time reveled in the, the, the connotations of the sexual nature of it all, but left it for people's imaginations and so made everything stale and just, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't feel like they were anything to get excited about when you actually looked at all of the information this happened and then this person went to court he was really a scapegoat and then he got killed etc etc and then new government got installed um and the same thing nearly happened in america but let's not talk about that that's kind of the rundown you get from from reading the history books and it's much more exciting than that much more interesting the characters are amazing and there's loads of stories that haven't been told because a narrative has been set down over a very, very, very long time. And it's an establishment narrative, a narrative they wanted you to repeat. And then after a certain amount of time, after any big event, they reset the narrative as well. The establishment tends to reset the narrative. So you have this happen in the late 80s with the Profumo affair too. But like I say, the characters are so rich. And once I looked into it, I found all of these stories that hadn't been told. And some of it, and I, I honestly, I, I well up. We, we when we talk about like if we were to talk about the first person uh, who I write about, I well up. I, I I do well up because I had an emotional attachment to some of the people involved and some of the victims of of and some of the untold stories behind the Profumo affair that no one realizes happened. And I wanted to tell a lot of those stories, not only about the murdered women, but about these weird gangsters and how they become intelligence men and how they created satanic panic and how they did so, so many interesting things, uh, all with style and flair. I wanted to tell these stories because I felt that the Profumo affair 
does not all of the the history books do not tell the true story behind it they tell you a really sanitized version of events and i hate sanitized versions of events yeah no absolutely it has been very much sanitized and as we will get into um we, you know we're not going to just get only into i mean we will get into some salacious details but you know we're also going to cover some of the players and you know how you're saying that there's these mob people and that they're linked to intelligence and i mean you know you have the oss cowboys and stuff and they were working with every dictator and you know they were working with the mob and operation underworld and and stuff like that so i mean very early on i mean it certainly got worse after the creation of the cia in 1947 and stuff but there's always kind of been this you know union between the overworld and the underworld and this is something that we see here you know so i mean it's not just you know some british politicians who are cheating on their wives at sex parties it goes a whole lot deeper than that and also your article series does do a really good job of not just making it uh i mean you do point out all these different connections to people but also you do a very good job of bringing these people to life and showing us that they were real people and you know how they were and how they operated and stuff like that and so it made it a very fun and interesting read so you've definitely made it not as bland as some people have but I guess that my first question getting into kind of this stuff leading up to the Perfumo affair is in your first two or three articles, you kind of talk about the UK club scene and all these shady people inside of here. And some of these people who aren't so shady, but they kind of get wrapped up and get in over their heads with this all. So I guess we'll just start where you start with on your first article. So can you tell us a little bit about who... Esmeralda Golan was and about her death. Oh, I am excited to because quite simply, this is the first time that I've really got to um, say about Esmeralda Golan and what my opinion is because I lay down all the evidence, but I've also got a, a very strong opinion on what happened to Esmeralda Golan. Uh, Esmeralda Golan, who who got married um, to uh, a wing commander during the uh, uh, war or just before the war, about 1938, uh, Ronald N Noel Smith. Um, so she was later known as. Esmeralda Noel Smith and kept that name because it sounded very posh, uh, didn't sound so foreign. She had actually had, um, I think both the parents were from Chilean descent, um, but her father, um, he was uh, the head of a city surveyors or something along those lines um, in Belfast, which was a troubled city in itself. And um, he uh, married a Chilean uh, woman who... Then they, of course, Esmeralda is born alongside uh, other siblings. Now, I didn't concentrate on the family too much because by the time Esmeralda Galan 16, she's leaving her family. 16, 17, she runs away from home, um, you could say, uh, to uh, go to London to start a career because she wants to be an actor. And she appeared in loads of shows back in Belfast and, uh, and uh, in a theatre in Dublin as well, I think where she showed lots of promise and she appeared in started appearing in the movies i mean once she had run away from home and gone to london she had more opportunities and she started appearing in movies and she appeared in some movies with some big actors as well you know she was 
quite uh, uh, successful for uh, movies in her age, but this was the 1930s. She's also related to some very interesting people. There's some very interesting people in her family, uh, which include uh, uh, um, uh, a brother who's also um, an actor. I think it might be his cousin. It's hard to remember. Uh, He was a very interesting actor who was in a film called Jusus, which was um, a pro... Uh, <clears throat> a pro-Jewish movie in the 1930s that later got made into a Nazi propaganda film of the same name by Goebbels. Um, and and it, it, she also had a relative who was a uh, coach for a vocal coach, a very famous vocal coach. And they seemed to be a very affluent family. But she went off to London. And when when I um, looked at her father, Hector Gulan, I, I discovered that, you know, there wasn't many links in the family history tree and the various family history trees to Esmeralda Glan. It was almost like she was written out of history, um, which was a real sad thing because she was a very successful lady. She goes to London, appears in loads of movies, marries Ronald Noel Smith. During the war, She's there's like a bit of an article in a Canadian newspaper I found about her and stuff, being an inspiring young lady to this wing commander who's based in uh, out in, a, in the middle of nowhere in Canada. Um, I don't think he was a very clever guy, was Ronald Noel Smith. And eventually, Eventually, she leaves him in 1947, as the CIA is being created over in America. Uh, She's uh, divorcing Ronald Noel Smith. She's a really interesting woman. She worked um, in ENSA during the war, which was uh, Entertainment's National Services Association. And that had lots of the famous dancers and actors who would go and entertain the troops. So she obviously had different connections. And when she got out of the war, she she was like... inspiring beyond belief this was a new age for women women were suddenly during the war in factories and doing these sort of jobs this new generation of women were being given some form of freedom because the war happened and in 1947 Esmeralda Gulland started like buying up uh, after a divorce started buying up properties in London and redeveloping properties and investing in things and it was a lot of women who had saved up their money during the war they had nothing to spend it on partially you know and they didn't have much money anyway and once times got more affluent they'd collected things and they you know they, they they invested their little bit of this into that or little bit of this into that and they became successful the property uh was booming in london you know everybody wanted to be in post-war london and most of post-war london had been flattened so renovating properties was the best way to go um and she she uh, eventually went into um uh, nightclub ownership so she opened up a, a dover street buttery with a woman called elspeth march who was the ex-wife of one of the former film directors in the film she had worked on um and they, they, this dover street buttery was her first entrance i went to the dover street buttery um uh, kind of for the the run-up to the series i went to london i just i just went round like a a big fanboy going to all of the sites and no one knows about these stories and no one knows about and this is the reason why i'm so passionate about Italian Esmeralda Gulan story is that Esmeralda Gulan story ends with her dying of uh, a gas leak in a flat on a divan with uh, rumors by Lillian Pizzuccini or, or to blatantly saying that she was running lesbian clubs and she was a lesbian and she was found next to a lesbian lover on the and I don't think any of this story is quite true or backed up with the facts when you look at it at all 
at all. And there's a rewriting of who she was and then a, a, a kind of belittling of what she created. And that was the same in reality. She bought into a few different nightclubs, um, but she purchased and she renovated from scratch Esmeralda's Barn. Um, and Esmeralda's Barn, she had a few places. So she had the Dover Street Buttery. She had um, the Montrose Club, which was um, in Halfkin Street uh, in, in London. And that was right round the corner from Esmeralda's Barn. And Esmeralda's Barn used to be the Torch Theatre. Um, and it, it was made into this very swish nightclub in a very fancy part of the town next to the main road, so easy access, right across from Buckingham Palace, right across from all of the... the the big places and this she she uh, had been holidaying in italy and pietro anigoni who was painting uh his it might be his first or second portrait of queen elizabeth was hanging around with her on holiday and he wanted to paint esmeralda and she said no instead paint my my new nightclub esmeralda's barn so he went in and this famous artist painted a mural on the wall that esmeralda gulan quickly covered up I don't know why this was so, but there's lots of interesting things happening that didn't make sense and didn't have, you know, by this time you're talking, it's 1954, 19, uh, about 1954, 1955. And, and the, the, Esmeralda Gulan is going to die around the same time as another nightclub owner in London, very famous nightclub owner, uh, nightclub manager. Uh, I don't know how much he had in it because it was Morris Connolly who owned her clubs, but uh, Ruth Ellis, who was the last woman to ever be hung, uh, hanged by the neck until dead in uh, in Great Britain, um, was also running a club right nearby. They all kind of knew each other. All of these girls were aware of each other or had crossed paths on multiple times. And it's really weird how quickly they all die and what how, how it all looks like accidents. But Esmeralda Gulan had entered in with some really interesting characters. There's some really in, uh, interesting um, uh, newspaper reports about her uh, being caught uh, caught by police parking badly in Nottingham uh, traffic cafe in the middle of the night and stuff. And she gets a reputation for herself. She buys into a racehorse or two. She's hanging around with the elites. Um, people like the uh, A and... Uh, 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 Pierre, uh, George Huntington Hartford II, hanging around in her nightclubs with her. She's meeting all of the people from 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 the the London set. But along with that comes this whole different world because to get into those nightclubs, Esmeralda Gulan would have had to. Um, uh, get into bed un with some uncomfortable people. Now it's not known quite uh, who she was in business with for Esmeralda's barn, um, but I, I, I know that the rumor is that there was a man called Ronnie Dice um, who sold his stake over to um, Billy Hill eventually, and Billy Hill then sold it over to the craze a few years later. But this was all after Esmeralda Gulan died, so. Um, Esmeralda Goulan uh, was found in uh, her flat. Um, I think it was in Kinnerton Street uh, in London. Um, she had come home from a party uh, from from one of her bars. She'd come home from the Montrose Club. 
and she had brought back two men who had be, been unnamed. They, they didn't appear in any of the the, the reports about the court. Um, just they just said two men and a a, a woman who um, was one of her young hostesses in in uh, the Montrose Club and Esmeralda's band. I think she worked in both of them. And they went back and had, had danced until the early hours of the morning in a in a, a flat. Um, and eventually the young lady had gone to bed early um, and was having a, a, a doze, dozing off when Esmeralda, a couple of hours later, came, knocked on a door, came in a room and said, I'm, I'm going to bed now, and, uh, and went to bed. And a little girl said in court that she went to bed in a separate room, which was her room, and she was staying in this room. Um, and then they were found, both gassed, unconscious, still just still alive, but unconscious, gassed, um, and they uh, there had been a cut or a, 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 a problem with the pipe, with the gas pipe, uh, the court would later rule, um, uh, that had meant that they were gassed, but they were suddenly in the same room again. So the young lady survives and gives evidence uh, that they went to bed in separate um, rooms. But when the police arrive, they're in the same bed in the same room. And there's lots of, with, with Esmeralda Gulan's story, there's lots of this. There's lots of weird little anomalies within the stories. And then with the, the a few of the other uh, deaths, there's some weird anomalies. And Esmeralda and the young lady were taken into hospital. And Esmeralda apparently regained a tiny bit of consciousness, but wasn't able to say much, and then went back unconscious and died. And the young lady survived. Um, but nothing was said about uh, who... Uh, the two men were just that two men had come back and danced with them. Now, I, 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 I had only seen that as suspicious because I had followed back through time already from the time the craze owned Esmeralda's barn and me investigating Esmeralda's barn. I went back through history and got back to Esmeralda herself opening up her barn and the story that she went through. And through that, I, I realized there was something the first night that I sat down and looked into it. I realized there was something else there and I went to bed and I could not sleep at all. I mean, I was I was just like my mind was wired. I just had her in my head the entire time. And I said, OK, I'm just going to get up and continue research. I continued to do another few hours of research. And I just found more and more dead women over the next year and a half and it's only a year and a half period and this is not repeated in any other like period or era a load of managers and hostesses are in in these very rich london clubs either go missing um are found dead uh usually of natural causes with massive different um anomalies in each of the cases um and so esmeralda gulan was the starting point of saying was this just a normal death or was this to wrestle control of what would end up eventually becoming an establishment nightclub for intelligence linked gangsters who were, who were, were the center of where um, 
Cold War uh, secrets were being passed across lines between the Soviets and the, the Soviet spies to the Soviets and the, uh, the the West trying to keep the Western intelligence agents trying to keep up with them. This was all happened in the dark, in happening in darkened rooms of these nightclubs. So these nightclubs were really important areas, and understanding that uh, were really important, like. Um, uh, tools for the intelligence agencies to see who is meeting who who is friends with who and once they implicate one person all of that group get implicated and this happened multiple times this happens in the perfumo affair as well um so the nightclubs i started to realize became a very central part of the perfumo affair um and this has been repeated in douglas thompson's work in his uh book stephen ward scapegoat uh i can't remember what it's called something like the society loved it but when he knew too much they killed him which is a very long title <laughs> for a book <laughs> um but he's it, it, it Oh, it keeps like coming back to the Esmeralda's Barn, the Montrose Club, places like this being a real center of activity during the Cold War era. Absolutely. And, you know, just to highlight, I mean, you've already mentioned this, but, you know, Esmeralda was not the only person who you talk about in your article series who was a woman involved in this nightclub scene who would mysteriously show up dead. There was also Janae Curtis Benet, and maybe the one who I thought had the most suspicious death at all. And I really do want to get into Esmeralda's barn in just a second. But if you could just real briefly tell us about Barbara Knox Marsh and her death just because reading through it i mean you know you might be able to go okay well a gas leak gas leaks happen people die of gas leaks but uh just the the whole saga of barbara knox marsh and her death was uh really just kind of brain rattling for me yeah i um i i that was the next person i discovered along the road when i got back out of bed and started looking into things and i was just i was i just everything felt funny you know everything there's a big feeling inside maybe a sixth sense you know that you've got this feeling oh my god something's wrong here and when i put together all of the information it became clear that there were big anomalies within the story uh, from the first reports onwards there's some weird stuff that happens uh, for her to die um and i i would say one of the special things about being a journalist is that now and again you actually come across somebody who's related to one of these people and i come across a lady that was related um Barbara uh, Knox Marsh was born, um, I think it was 1927, and her mum died the following year. So she didn't get to know her mum, and I don't know who she lived with, but I think it was probably her auntie. And her auntie, um, her, I, I don't know if it was her auntie's daughter or daughter, uh, granddaughter, I got in contact with me while I was asking a couple of questions on one of the ancestor sites to someone about um, uh, Barbara Knox Marsh. And I, I realized that even like within the family, there's some, there's, there's like, I'm not sure if there's secrets within the family or if at the time to understand her death, people in the family had to just like parcel off psychological parts of their, their brain that, that hurt from thinking about why it happened because 
they during the time um what's her name doreen lewis i think her name is um who's uh barbara knox marsh's auntie appears in court and says um that she's really happy but she's she has she was really depressed in the past but she was just trying to trying to trying to show off and that's probably what this was she probably tried to show off and then she died and we, you, you think what what was she trying to show off how did she die how did she die she died in the most peculiar circumstances she gets home from a nightclub she's got a, a gramophone on slightly her accountant she's at a baker street flat her accountant is uh james mcburney is um asleep uh, in his room uh she's got home she's taken uh 10 grams grains they say i don't know what that means i don't know what type of measurement grains is but it's something they used to say back then uh 10 grains of seconal um which is like a bit of a, a relaxer um and she's sitting in the chair and she she somehow strangles herself with the standard lamp cord um but not enough to kill her and this is the most amazing thing the coroners uh in the case in the actual in- inquest will say 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 that she this 10 second um dose that she took of like sleeping pill tranquilizers wasn't enough to kill her it wasn't an overdose and the strangulation she suffered from the lamp cord wasn't enough to kill her but the combination of the two killed her and they posit that she's sitting on the chair now when she's when she's first report reported in the newspaper as dead they say that the police reported that she's found on the floor but in the court they say she's found upright in the chair still yet that doesn't make any sense when you actually uh take into account what they say happens because she's supposed to be sitting on the chair she gets up she has a standard lamp cord gets tangled in her arms she's got bruising on her arms and her neck and they say that's not you know they don't mention that being of a struggle they don't say that it's not from a struggle it's not defensive wounds even though anybody would say like bruises on your arms like you've been putting up your face to protect yourself from someone would probably be classed as defensive wounds. They don't. They don't say that. They just mention that she got bruises on her arms and neck uh, from where she struggled with a standard lamp that got slightly wrapped around her neck and asphyxiated her slightly, but not enough to kill her. But because she had taken the second all, she died. And then she's found upright in the chair. That's what they say. In the coroner's say she's found sitting in the chair with a cord around her neck dead and she's supposed to have fallen off the chair and got wrapped up in the standard and it it hurts your head it hurts your head to hear these people uh speaking in like ignoring the big questions uh, these uh, coroners, the judges, uh, it's really hard to understand how they cannot ask some other questions. But this is repeated in each of the uh, coroner's inquiries or inquests. I can't remember which one they are. There is a difference between inquiries and inquests uh, in the UK. But whatever happens after the, the, the I think it's a coroner's inquest is called. Um, uh, but I, I, I really, it's, 
repeated in each of these girls the cases of each of these girls dying there's really really interesting um talk in the court which kind of distracts from other questions that need to be asked that aren't asked so uh, straight away i i went through linda justice was another one who was found dead at the time she had uh been the apprentice and taken on by ruth ellis the last woman to be hanged who ran the little club and she went on to run the little club um and then there was uh, Janet Curtis uh, Bennett, and it was, it, you know, there was a string of girls dying in the nightclubs. What's really important, what's really vital to understand, is that these nightclubs in uh, less than a year after Esmeralda's death will start falling into hands of the most peculiar intelligence-linked, gangster-linked people, including one man in particular called Horace Dibbin, Hod Dibbin, who's truly one of the most fascinating characters to ever live and is uh, the husband of Mariella Novotny. Um, So so these, obviously, there's a change of hand in these uh, London nightclubs. Barbara Knox Marsh had run the Blue Angel, She'd got home from the Blue Angel nightclub um, and she had just sold her steak. She seemed a bit like she seemed everybody said she seemed happy on the night last night before she she went home and had this uh took an overdose and had this argument with the standard lamp cord. She seemed happy to just before she she left the club she sang a song uh danced a little bit she threw a penny in the fountain and she wished everybody good night and told them she'd see him again tomorrow, but she had just sold her steak literally that day. She had sold her stake in it. Uh, and all of these um, different nightclubs get uh, basically in the, turned into uh, places where gangsters would first take them over. And then those gangsters would basically be involved in... They, I say, you know, I say to people that gangsters take over and then they, it turns into intelligence, uh, like intelligence people take over. But the gangsters and intelligence merge on both sides of the continent, both in America and both in Britain. At this time in the late 50s and the early 60s, the gangsters are being picked up and recruited because they have skill sets that you can't find in the normal workforce that really benefit intelligence agencies, uh, agencies like CIA, MI5, MI6, who want these subversive and uh, usually illegal tactics, uh, including how to and a break and enter, how to scare people, how to murder people, how to get rid of bodies. These are things that gangsters knew how to do. So there's no one better by this point. The techniques of the intelligence agencies had got to the point where uh, murder was on the menu and they were going to continue to use that as a tool. And they needed people who didn't have a conscience and didn't care about uh, offing someone and getting rid of their body and there was only a couple of different types of people and only one that would work for uh, profit and that was gangsters so that's what happened there and then is the merger i'm though as all of those girls get taken out from the different nightclubs all of those nightclubs 
twist and change into something else and the whole london nightclub scene becomes something else and suddenly it the press are lifting it up as well especially the mirror newspaper who do a lot of advertising the quirky characters who exist in these nightclubs and kind of giving them fronts and covers for when things weird happen that can't be explained absolutely and my audience will be very familiar because it's been a running theme throughout this show, you know, both the union between organized crime and intelligence agencies and intelligence agencies outsourcing things to organized crime or to sometimes even private intelligence agencies that can kind of do things that, you know, the, the government ones can't do exactly. And so, I mean, we do see that the nightclub change, which you lay out in your series begins to change and you already briefly mentioned him, but I guess next we should just dive into Horace Dibbon, who would kind of take control of Esmeralda's barn. And you say in your article series that it became the center of intelligence-led spy games, gangland infiltration, and an elite sex blackmail operation. And so talk a little bit about Horace Dibbon, the self-proclaimed Satanist. I think my audience will find this really interesting because they're all super interested in stuff like the the Franklin cover-up, the Presidio, uh, you know, child abuse scandal. And, you know, you see these intelligence blackmail, sexual blackmail operations happening. And, you know, sometimes there's also this weird satanic flair to it. And so I guess who was Horace Dibbon? He's one of my most favorite characters to ever have found throughout the annals of history. There's actually uh, about three or four within the Profumo affair, uh, maybe maybe even five or six, to be honest, uh, special characters that I have not never seen anywhere else. I've never, I've never, never tasted their their qualities all in one character before. And Horace Dibbin is the top of that pile. Horace Dibbin is a special. He's a, he was Plymouth Brethren, so he was he was born in the early nineteen hundreds. And by the time he gets round to being um, uh, a boss of Esmeralda, he's in his late 50s, early 60s, but he's got one hell of a, 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 a way about him. Um, he's an extremely interesting man. He was brought up in a strict religious family, and during the uh, World War II, he became an RAF fighter uh, pilot. Um, there are, is rumour that he was some form of, also some sort of flight squadron leader or something along those lines um but with horace dibbin you never know if that's just bump if that's just added extra to to give him a little bit of flavor he was a quirky looking guy you know he he was obviously friends with everyone but he didn't seem to care about anything he was from an extremely wealthy family i i documented i found um uh his local newspapers reporting what he got on his wedding day and his dad gave him a house i mean (laughs) that's a pretty big thing to give someone um he was from a really wealthy family um and he uh became an antique stealer and uh he also became um uh, he used to renovate buildings old buildings and houses i've i've heard and i've seen marielle novotny say that but i've i've um not been able to find any evidence of that yet but he also did a load of other really quirky things i think he was a middleman anyway he was obviously very charismatic figure and very funny and people just 
oddly liked Hod. They just fell in love with him straight away. Everybody who met him found him such an intriguing character. And he's a, a really weird one to look at as well. He's got these crooked teeth and he's big and stocky with a big fat belly. He's, he's really not the most handsome man in the world. Um, and yet he marries, ends up marrying this 18-year-old, 17, 18-year-old beauty, Mariella Novotny, um, who, who ends up in the bedchamber of JFK. And you say, who the hell's Hod Dibbin? Well, Hod Dibbin says when he was on, um, he said in 1961, September in 1961, in some articles in the People newspaper, that was when he was on the Orkney Isles, uh, serving during the war near the village of Twat, Twat with three T's, so T-W-A-T-T, and this village does exist in the Orkney Isles in Scotland. Um, he uh, became part of a satanic brotherhood, and within that satanic brotherhood, he was recruited by a woman called Cicera, um, and and he tells these stories in, in the four-part uh, newspaper articles just after the um, uh, Mary Ellen Novotny has been smuggled out of America by the FBI and CIA. Um, his wife has been smuggled out. Of, he even mentions it in the first article, My Young Wife, when she got accused of terrible things because of Harry Allen Tower. You know, he, he's, he's a really funny, quirky character. But he tells of these satanic adventures. I I was I was there in, in on my bed in my squadron headquarters, and I looked down, and there was this nest, and it had eggs in and I looked at the eggs and they had swastikas and they were they were covered in blood and oh and then he, he takes part in these satanic orgies and he gets recruited and then he tries to escape the brotherhood but then uh, rejoins them again and then he lives in a haunted house and all of these stories come out and he he he's seeding this satanic panic all of these things are real narrative straight out there this is like one of the most popular Sunday newspapers was the People newspaper and this was in the People newspaper which is the like the Sunday mirror the mirror alternative on Sunday and he's on page two and three these articles are most of them are, are, are really front and center they want people thinking satanism is real and it's everywhere and they really push it out there and it's a time where obviously he's already linked with intelligence operations but going back whether that's true or not he really did serve in the war he really was um a, 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 in flying around he was one of the flying boys he, he had nerves of steel apparently and he, he led operations apparently and he served in the Orkneys um, but how much of it is true or not who knows around this time when he she's around um, 16 he manages to recruit a girl called Patsy Morgan now I believe it's when she was 16 and it's in about 1945 just at the end of the war he puts an advert saying um, he wanted to find he wants to find a girl who will be his assistant and do lots of things for him um, but then she turns up and he says oh I want to make you my Pygmalion girl and and he's gonna make uh, he's gonna like uh uh, Turner into Bernard Bernard Shaw's uh, great Pygmalion girl. It's really uh, 
rags to riches tale of put through elocution lessons learned how to dress properly and how to act and he did that he took this butcher's daughter who was common as muck by the sounds of things and he turned her into the hostess with the mostess around london patsy morgan dibbin and he uh was with her um before he got divorced he was creating this girl like adopting this girl and creating her into him before he got divorced it's very weird he gets divorced in the early 50s he loses his inheritance he goes bankrupt through the, the 50s patsy morgan dibbon is working in arts and entertainment she's seen um as, as like uh working as an agent for some actors like i, I think her name Zena marshall and people um who were quite big actors at the time so she was doing like a publicity agent for for these people but then suddenly the death of Esmeralda Gulan happens and uh, Hod Dibbin gets in to, uh, basically purchases I, I don't know if it's part of and then he sell, sells off but he does say in one of these newspapers article uh, newspaper articles that one of his friends um, an Italian count or something had a stake within Esmeralda's barn had bought a stake and so he entered into that too and he basically starts running Esmeralda's barn and he puts Patsy Morgan Dibbin in charge as a hostess with the mostess in Esmeralda's barn less than a year after the death of Esmeralda Gulan it's taken over by this guy who's really really linked in it seems very convenient and then what happens to her is extremely interesting as well and it just baffling because patsy patsy morgan chooses to be called patsy morgan dibbin after he uh, adopts her at the age of 16 and he brings her up to be a fine lady and by like 1956 1957 she's his hostess with a mostess everybody wants to know her she's a toast of the town you know Esmeralda Goulan is long dead she's been dead less than a year they just don't care anymore they're like no this is the best woman ever distract distract don't ask any questions let's move on and that's exactly what they did they moved on but then within no time whatsoever Patsy Morgan Dibbin has gone missing she goes missing and there's all of these stories this um there's actually you know there's i i looked much more into these stories than i've put down because i think i'm going to write an article much later about what really happened to patsy morgan dibbing because i think she died but i think there's a lot of cover stories to what happened to her and one of them is that she is going to jump out of a plane over the North Pole with um, some sort of OSO officer or something who's going to who's who served during the war, and they're going to jump out. And she says, "I've never jumped out of anything more than a bar stool before, but I'm going to do it because it sounds like a good laugh." And you know, um, and then she's off marrying someone over in the continent and dating somebody else, but she's not really marrying them. She says in the article so it's like well why are you even telling me uh, and and laura pizzuccini in her book she mentions her round in the stories of her being round in the con- uh, continent as well but there's no evidence that she she existed after she goes missing uh, being the hostess of the mostess the the rumor is she she on her last day when she goes missing um she says to someone oh i've had wonderful news i can't tell you about it now but i'll see you later and then she just goes off and then she's gone 
<laughs> and she she just doesn't come back into it. Instead, Horace Divin, uh, Esmeralda's barn, eventually goes over to uh, be uh, run by I I believe I think his name. I always keep going to say Jimmy Hill, but I think his name's Billy Hill. Uh, he's one of the biggest mobsters. He was involved in the Brinks Matt robbery, which was a big train robbery with a load of gold being taken, and he never got convicted for that. So he's like a legend on the the gangster scene in London. He he was a uh, his partner was Gypsy Hill. They used to attend Hod Dibbin orgies. So they used to go there and watch them all. And there's this wonderful story where Billy Hill, who owns Esmeralda's Barn afterwards, is, is, uh, it says that, that he, he was at one, one night and, um, there was, there was, uh, it, Gypsy Hill went up to the toilet. Um, and she heard, he heard a big scream and she comes running down and she had found two pairs of eyes looking at her through slits in the wall. And it was Hod Dibbin behind the wall watching her while she was on the toilet and Horace Dibbin was this for the, the stories of his orgies are peacocks walking around that's where the man in the mask um uh rumors come from and stories you know a lot of what you see later uh repeated about the perfumer affair in the main parts those were those were orgies that were real true had all of these very big players at them with people having sex all over the place just out in the open this crazy this was hard Dibbin this was Horace Dibbin putting on all the whole show. And by 1960, he was opening The Black Sheep. And when he opened The Black Sheep, he did something quite amazing because he employed a girl, a very interesting girl, um, who he would, uh, she would get fired and then he would ask her to marry him and buy her a pair of spectacles so she could see him and she looked at him and said yes I want to marry him and that's Mary Ellen Novotny who plays a central role in the perfume affair and of course in uh, gets smuggled out of the USA after being caught in JFK's bed chamber allegedly um, and smuggled out by the CIA and FBI and this is like that story is just incredible incredible Horace Dibbin yeah no absolutely um yeah, and I mean, he just kind of looks like as much of a freak as he is. He kind of reminds me of, first of all, there's something weird with the Plymouth Brethren. That's also the milieu that Aleister Crowley would come out of. So I mm -hmm. guess that they have a knack for, in those days, turning people into uh, Satanists after they get out from their um, parents' house. But Anyhow, and then, I mean, he also just kind of has this like Michael Aquino type look to him, the guy who was involved with the military and the Presidio stuff. And he would start, he'd be in the Church of Satan, then he would start the Temple of Set, and he was into psychological warfare and stuff. They both have like just these, this weird hair and eyebrows and are kind of like these like big, heavy set <laughs> dudes. There's just this weird parallel mm -hmm. between them. Um, you know, where they kind of look every bit as evil as as they are like and it kind of makes yeah. you wonder if it's the evil that made them look that way or if they, you know, look that way. And so they go, ah, well, I guess there's nothing else to do besides become an evil intelligence linked Satanist. So kind of a chicken. Yeah, the, doesn't it just. Yeah, a chicken in the egg situation <laughs> going on there. But OK, so we have Dibbin who is throwing these satanic sadomasochistic sex parties 
He's a self-proclaimed Satanist. He was in the Royal Air Force. He, you know, has these, you know, intelligence ties kind of. And then he gets involved in Esmeralda's barn. And this is where we start to see some of the Profumo affair characters come into play because we start seeing people like Stephen Ward and Billy Astor hanging out mm-hmm. at Esmeralda's barn. And they would eventually get involved with these, you know, kind of raunchous sex parties among the elite. So I guess the next question is, you know, because we know that Stephen Ward is in this milieu of people. So who was Stephen Ward and how did he end up factoring into these satanic sex parties and sadomasochistic orgies that Dibbon was throwing for the upper crust of the UK at the time? I, I want to find a word that describes Stephen Ward concisely, but it's really hard. He seems like a really bland character, like the type of person everybody loves because he's just no harm and he's nice to everybody. And I think he came across as that. But most of all, he took a, a, a really... Um, he, he he took a good move really early on, made a really good move. He became an osteopath. Um, and osteopaths obviously can help people. And he obviously learned tricks to the trade that meant that the women who were with him loved him, loved him. He was a really strange guy. When he, he was very obviously extremely sexually active. He was an extremely sexually active guy, and you find that out from the Perfumo affair eventually. You find that Stephen Ward was enjoying a sex and linking other people up with sex um, with other people and, and attending orgies, even though he did attend Hod Dibbins' orgies. They weren't his favorite, apparently. He didn't like all of the pomp and ceremony. He preferred to connect with a woman, so he was much more about, and there's something I can understand, you know, he had the, the love of being being able to like you know not necessarily have uh, full sex straight away but to actually lie there with someone and connect with someone a lot of the stories of women who were around Stephen Ward tell of him are these long like they're lying there naked and they're staring into each other's eyes and they're going off to a realm of meditation and all of this stuff so Stephen Ward was a very interesting character he also used to sketch people and he he managed uh to get some good jobs early on and he was a very amiable chap so he was very friendly and he got some good jobs with some high up people uh, very early on including like uh <laughs> um, what's his what's his name um avril um oh god i can't remember Harriman? his name now um yeah 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 he, he was he was the osteopath for for harriman when he was in london at one point um and he would he would use all of these connections these big connections that he had you'll hear that i mean i i'm giving away like tidbits of of the future articles here so so i should be a tiny bit careful but i i mean i don't i don't really mind talking about all of this um he, but he would yeah uh, avril harriman was one of the people who was hit one of his connections he every time he had a connection like that he they would trust him fully he had a way with them and he would he 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 had the same with prince philip uh members of the royal family members of the royal household minor lords ladies uh i think churchills were on his roster and he would not only would he be a good osteopath and a good listener but he would sit and he would sketch these people and he was stephen ward was an amazing artist 
artist, one like his talent. If it, he t- took up being an osteopath, but his talent was obviously in um, sketching people's uh, people. Just amazing, amazing work. And when you look at it, you know exactly who it is straight away. And it's quite uh, uh, and lots of really famous people sat for him. And when it when eventually when he died, they published a lot of his pictures um, uh, in in the newspaper because they're just so they're so fantastic. I, I can't I can't re, uh, you know say enough about his 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 ability. And he seemed like a really nice chap. But these were new times. These were times where there was like we understand this whole spy game stuff now because we've seen loads of movies we've seen loads of tv series we've read the books we've seen we've things like the franklin scandals been uh, been covered over and over again and kennedy assassinations have been looked at over and over again we see operations happening in real time nowadays and we're like oh god look at that Nord Stream stuff we know who it is so so why are we even discussing it now you know it's just it's blatantly obvious back then it wasn't so obvious and Stephen Ward I think was in amongst he loved being in amongst all of these really beautiful women really some I mean Christine Keeler who's a real central figure of the actual perfumer affair um, was uh, enticing beautiful ravishing oh my god you, you just like all of them were just really beautiful really relaxed girls who were in a really trendy part of London and Stephen Ward managed to connect all of these people together and because he was such a nice nice amiable chap everybody loved him everybody loved Stephen Ward they re- they wanted to be around him and he uh he was always at the place to be if if Stephen Ward was there you knew you wanted to be there too because you would get to hang around with all of these pretty young things and then these weird characters like Horace Dibbon and other people because um Stephen Ward used to hang around with Horace Dibbon they were they were cl- close friends and that's a really weird thing because uh, they don't seem like the same characters at all uh Stephen Ward's this lanky type of uh thin guy and Hod Dippin's this really chunky uh, looking fella. Um Stephen Ward's pictured famously over and over again in turning up at nightclubs like Esmeralda's Barn and the like with Astor wearing sunglasses in the nighttime and stuff. They called it um Douglas Thompson called him like he was Belmondo chic. And and this was this was something that he was a really trendy enticing interesting person of course it didn't end well for him did it i i, I mean we know we we know what happened he did become uh, a major scapegoat that's not wrong but i i think there's i i think he knew how much danger he was entering into and that was part of his kick that was part of his vibe he loved being cool in the face of danger be strolling into it with this bomondo chic look while the whole world's going and i kind of understand it i worked in um i worked in hotels i worked in a, a five-star hotel once upon a time and when you work in a five-star hotel you get you get trained uh, up the wazoo you know you you get every type of training you can possibly imagine um and you have to you have to encounter the weirdest things and act in a weird manner of a manner that doesn't feel right when you're dealing with five-star customers you know you suddenly you, you get have to be trained in how to act how to deal how to understand and when you're hanging around with all of these people um and and some and you've been trained to keep your nerve with all of this crazy stuff going 
going on all around you and and managed to be like fully on on top of everything one time i had all of the fire alarms going off there was an actual fire going on there was uh people screaming there was people all over the floor it was everything was going bad Uh, it was only going to get worse and i found myself strolling through feeling ah because i'm relaxed and calm that makes me kind of cool now (laughs) you know it's that's what stephen ward was he was that assured assuredness in the face of panic and he could he didn't mind putting himself into places with high-ranking people because he didn't scare him they didn't they didn't worry him instead he was in control of them he would do something for them on their body connect with them as a human through physical interaction and that was i think his key i think he knew a little bit more about how to do so i don't think he was such a a, a just a patsy who was you know taking advantage of a scapegoat i don't i think he knew he was working in an area of intelligence but they hadn't understood what the dangers were because he was busy connecting people up so when um uh the the uh famous uh amp air uh, george huntington hartford ii come to london stephen ward would act as his galane maxwell to pick up girls off the street young girls uh i say in the articles mariella novotny at 18 years old was too old for huntington hartford he liked them prime that was what uh someone was quoted in the article he liked them prime he liked very young girls just like epstein which i make the obvious comparison in the title of the last of the series um but stephen ward was this person who linked these people up he hung around in a really strange group of people um uh, included sugden um who was uh, another guy who was a uh, establishment abortionist and used to work for the gangsters and of course within sex parties and within all of these sexy circles abortionists were needed and teddy sugden could give a girl an abortion and have her back out on the street in the same day he claimed so you know these people even though Stephen Ward seemed Belmondo chic the people he was hanging around with were uh, self-proclaimed satanist gangster linked intelligence agents and uh, and, and one uh, like a 12 hour turnaround abortionist there so said so he wasn't the nicest people Teddy Sugden is a fantastic um story i'm not sure if i include i think i did um about him uh on, on his birthday asking mariella novotny if she'll uh, simulate having sex with um uh, a reptile and so she did and uh said he was a very strange man he was a very strange man anyway teddy sugden had a had a half of his face hanging down he had a problem with half his face apparently would make him look like he was smiling all of the time these weird people were were hanging around this whole area it's just so fantastic to find out that you know that because as soon as you find out people like this exist you feel a bit little little bit better about your own simple peccadilloes (laughs) yeah yeah you have sugden who's constant he can't help but smile he's one of the ladies to do things with reptiles you have dibbin who's got peacocks walking around in the background probably wearing a cape and a like gimp outfit or something like that Yeah, yeah certainly a a strange crowd that is going around these parties and uh you know we talked about steven ward and how you know he's got all these connections you know he was the osteopath to harriman um you know he was hanging out with astor at you know the esmeralda's barn and i mean the astors i mean it wasn't uh you know we're kind of getting into some of the occult type connections that these 
people have. And um, I mean, not only did the Astors do bad stuff like help back the Nazis and stuff like that, but they would um, one of the places where some of these parties was going on was an Astor estate known as Cliveden. Um, and that's where a lot of the Profumo stuff, you know, was taking place. And at, you know, mm-hmm. after all the Profumo stuff happened, Astor's health would begin to decline. And, you know, oh, yeah. you know, when the knowledge became public and his wife, you know, thought that there was basically like, I mean, this isn't her wording, but like some demonic, you know, juju or something going on like that at Clive Din. And she would actually have a Roman Catholic priest exercise the place. But I mean, when we're talking <laughs> about the Astors, I mean, there was even more Astors who were into some weird kind of occult stuff. Uh, there was Alice Muriel Astor. Um, and she changed her name to sound something like, you know, kind of more posh and magical sounding. I can't remember what it was, but she had an interest in the occult and she would actually be one of the funders of the artichoke scientist, Audria Purick, I believe is how you pronounce their name. I could be wrong. It's one of those names that I've only read. I haven't heard aloud, but, and he was studying. I see them all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And he was studying. ESP and doing early research into entheogens and mushrooms and stuff, you know, which is interesting considering that he's tied to artichoke, which is, you know, one of these, you know, kind of like MK ultra type precursors and, you know, but I mean, anyways, I mean, and she would actually go to a seance that uh, this guy conducted at one point and he uh, believed that he had summoned the the nine which are like these like spiritual beings and and stuff like that and i mean maybe we'll get into uh you know some of the other people who are connected to this whole scene but yeah there's all all sorts of these you know weird uh, uh connections that they have but you know we've talked a little bit about dibbin we've talked about ward and we've talked about shook sugden and so in your series, you dive deep into, and you've mentioned him by name, but I, I think that he deserves, you know, a, a closer look at. Um, you talk about a billionaire philanthropist with ties to intelligence agencies. He had properties in New York, France, Palm Beach. He even had an island where he would host young girls for sex parties for the elite. But this man is not Jeffrey Epstein, and he, in fact, had more properties and wealth than the Mossad blackmail agent who we all know very well on this show. So who exactly was George Huntington Hartford II? One uh, again, one of the quirkiest people you can come across. When I'm going through these stories, and and I find an interesting um, little sort of a, a, a bit where someone's talked to someone, it's been documented down. Um, it, it can tell you a lot by what's said and what people want to hear. And Hunted and Hartford is, is someone who every time he said something, it just seemed weird. It just seemed like he was he was looking to do something very naughty all of the time and his life proved that George Huntington Hartford II was um, graced with a massive amount of wealth uh, from a very early age I think he he got his wealth when he was about 11 12 and uh, when his grandfather died and when his grandfather died the inheritance passed on over his father who his grandfather didn't like at all um uh, and on to uh, george hunted and hartford and his sister josephine hunted and hartford 
and they had a hell of a lot of money um that they were part of the amp the atlantic and pacific uh tea company which was the first chain grocery store uh, like he invented really the concept of chain grocery stores that's such a big deal especially back then he capitalized the market really early on um he he, he took he, he took so much money in um that by the time george hunted and hartford ii took over his money he was um a spoon-fed silver spoon-fed idiot of the highest order um as a kid it is even when he was in his teenage years his mum would cut up his food and feed it to him even when he was outside you know it was it was completely and utterly he went to school hated it he did there's this um, wonderful vanity fair article called hostage to fortune that's written i think it's in the the noughties just before his death a couple of years before his death and he's like he's describing his school years he's like saying something like he grips onto the sheet and looks anguished as he recalls his years in school and basically no one liked him he he was an unlikable leechy character with uh, dead eyes. No one wanted to be George Hunterdon Hartford II's friend. He went to a posh school. He came from new money, so everybody hated him. And they used to do terrible things to him in the shower, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> he he, he uh, went into... Obviously, he projected out, after that experience in school, he projected out wanting to get away. He went to Harvard and studied in Harvard. But he really didn't do anything with his degree. He w- went to work for his um, for the AMP company. And his uncles who were running it stuck him into uh, some back office counting beans. Literally, I mean, I think that I think the 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 actual job he had was something like you know trying to analyze bean distribution or something. He was literally just counting beans <laughs> in a room. So that didn't that, that that didn't last long, and he got really bored of it really quickly. I think they knew that they wanted to prove that he would get bored of something. So they they gave him the most boring job and he proved no time whatsoever he went and watched um yale play harvard um one day when he got fired uh, and yale won 14 nil so even his own home school side lost you know is everything in hunter everything he touched turned directly into some sort of poop it's you couldn't you couldn't stop it from happening hunted in hartford was somewhat cursed uh i think personally he started to to sail um obviously like trying to get away from this domineering mother his father died in the early 20s um when he was about 11 12 when he around the time he got his inheritance um so so he hadn't had a really good relationship his dad hadn't seen him for years and years um and hated hated the whole family hated everybody and his mum was really domineering overbearing all of the time so he hadn't learned anything he was an idiot uh, and he obviously wanted to sail away from it also went into yachting and then he's just like going around in yachts for years and years and years he's racing people and doing silly things and then he meets this girl mary lee epping epling and he he, uh, he runs off with her and gets married and makes his mum fall on the 
kitchen floor screaming that she was so in anguish uh, by by the fact that she he married this i think she was a pharmacy assistant or something and it, this was just like terrible for her she it, she she really cared about the name she she had um claimed to be like some i think in south carolinan girl but she was actually from jewish ancestry and hid it alone she she was really cared about how people uh, perceived the family and so when when <laughs> when her son ran off with a pharmacy assistant she was not happy about it and of course that didn't last long either i think she she um went off with uh, a famous actor oh douglas fairbank jr uh she she went off with i think uh eventually um and and you know Huntington Hartford was a waster. He was wasting his money. But when he hit the nineteen fifties, he really started to to put into projects. He wanted to create a name for himself. He felt like people had got him down for too long, and he would prove himself. And he got another um, young wife um, who uh, was a, a girl who went by the name of Marjorie Steele. Uh, Marjorie Steele was an acting name and she would become Marjorie Hunted and Hartford. I can't remember what her original uh, name is or if I ever actually found it out. Hmm. But anyway, she was um, a pretty actress. She was about 17, 18 when he met her. Uh, he had, his previous marriage had ended because he had um, been unfaithful and, and sired a, uh, a child out of, uh, out of the marriage with someone else. So, so his second marriage, I think he tried a, a lot hard and he tried to make her famous he he tried to make this career for this fledging young act, actress marjorie Steele. and this really she's a really interesting character she was selling cigarettes in a nightclub when he met her and he bought all her cigarettes that's the story and i first come across her and him um when uh, i was investigating esmeralda gulan and in the montrose club there's a story in the newspaper uh where esmeralda gulan is around the table as well and there's another eight or nine people and there's Pietro Anigoni um is there uh Marjorie Steele um uh, Marjorie Hunterton Hartford and George Hunterton Hartford II and uh it turned out that Marjorie uh and uh Pietro Anagoni were both master f- uh, forgers they could forge people's signatures really easily um and and this was something that they you know they wanted to compete so George Hunterton Hartford uh puts down his signature and they both do a forgery and no one around dinner table can work out what the original one is they were all so good it's amazing anagonis is amazing hers is amazing so she was a talented girl who had a load of different skills and she obviously impressed and he he had tried to get her loads of he did lots of things he bought loads of properties he went all the way around the place but he was still a playboy he was still acting like a playboy nearly the entire time he set up an artist colony during the 50s uh, in L.A., I think it is. He bought different uh, places, uh, including in the late 50s, a place called Hog Island, uh, which was out in the um, uh, Bahamas. Um, and he would rename that island Paradise Island. And he would... <laughs> 
he would he would uh design a flag for it which was just a p a p-shaped flag yeah um uh, for paradise island and on its opening of the paradise island resort that he built out there you know two thousand people turned up and there was massive soiree you know another paper i think reported one thousand people so you know there might be a little bit of bump attached to that too um but basically he was he he tried to create a load of things by the end of the the uh, 1960s he was uh no longer um uh, keeping his marriage together and he was attending all these orgies including in london and that meant he crossed over with stephen ward mariella novotny and horace dibbin and that's where he discovers they discovered because horace Stephen Ward for he's obviously constantly you can tell by Stephen Ward's constantly working out who he can get to go with who he's obviously an establishment matchmaker so you have to think that people pay him somewhat to get him uh, a good girl or girl at work and even though Horace Dibbon is married to Mariella he's talking to Horace Dibbon saying well why don't we get um Hunterton Hartford to uh to be with Mariella and 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 Horace Dibbon said well yeah maybe maybe but I, I i don't think so because it turns out hunted and hartford found her too old for him and she was only 18 so it's a really it's a, a really like it, it's a sinister idea of what hunted and hartford was but like i say it said at the beginning stephen ward would go out on the streets of london for him then and start picking up women for hunted and hartford just like elaine maxwell did for epstein um he once also drew he drew what was the what, what was the actual sentence it was he drew a sketch for Hunterton Hartford of a woman uh, being pleasured by a magical uh, metal flying machine. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, he, they, obviously, they obviously hung around in the same group. And Hunterton Hartford was hanging around and able to penetrate that group for a reason his sister josephine hunted in hartford who went mainly by josephine hartford had uh, eventually married uh, a man called Ivor bryce and she become josephine bryce she had already invested uh, her money and her partly inheritance in training racehorses and she had been extremely successful unlike her brother she was actually good at stuff um and she, everything that george hunted in hartford ii touched throughout his entire life failed in in her case it was different everything she touched succeeded and she was married to a man named Ivor Bryce and Ivor Bryce is a really important figure in history especially for James Bond fans because he's one of the people who helped create James Bond and was a childhood friend of um, Ian Fleming a childhood phlegm of Ian Fleming a childhood (laughs) friend of Ian (laughs) Ian Fleming and and, uh, he's extremely interested but it meant Josephine Bryce who also had um josephine and Ivor bryce had bought a house over in the bahamas too um that they called uh, uh, sorry an island little island that they called xanadu um uh, this would also be xanadu film company would be also responsible for the or xanadu productions for the first james bonds and then they would end up in court as well um with some other people who were involved in james bond um but but she had been very successful so she's much different than uh, 
George Hunter and Hartford. George Hunter and Hartford eventually in the sixties he just spiraled out of control, um, and he went into drugs, drugs, drugs. And as the drug uh, access increased all around the place, he basically burnt through his entire inheritance, um, his entire fortune, taking drugs and being high. Oh, I understand why. I understand why. And by by the time he was in the nineties, he was broke, and he was being looked after by his daughter in the a place that had been uh kept for him to live on yet he didn't have that much money left anymore just a couple of like savings that would be released every now and again so he was no longer the rich man that he once was and he was super rich uh amp was once uh the fourth or fifth of biggest company in the world so i mean that is a lot of money to burn through and he burnt through it all um and eventually died alone and unhappy and still kind of like high at about the age of 96 but damn he had one hell of a life yeah absolutely and i mean you know he's got some of these intelligence ties as well and i mean you know you mentioned ian fleming i mean ian fleming he was an officer in the royal navy's you know naval intelligence department and what have you i mean so you have all these different people who have all these different ties to intelligence you also have all these different people who are you know tied to you know this weird satanic stuff that's going on i mean We've already talked a little bit about, you know, Stephen Ward and some of his connections. But I mean, just as I was looking into this, some some for myself, I mean, uh, he was also friends with this guy named John Paul Getty Jr. And he was in the whole Profumo scene. And, you know, back to just like weird occult stuff going on in these circles, he would help kind of fund the New Age movement to a certain extent. He would be one of the guys who funded Kenneth Anger, who Kenneth Anger was this guy. He made this film named Lucifer Rising. He's like this art house film director, but he has mm-hmm. Lucifer tattooed on his belly, like the thug life tattoo, but like it says <laughs> Lucifer across his stomach. And he would have Bobby Busalil, who's a convicted murderer, and he was involved with the Manson family star in the film Lucifer Rising. And actually, I think Jimmy Page was supposed to do the soundtrack, but that fell through. Um, another person who, you know, it, there's not good evidence to suggest it, but it's been rumored that Marianne McLean, who would go on to be Marianne de Grimston, um, who was part of the Process Church, which was. I've done a couple episodes on them, so some of my listeners will be very familiar with them. But, you know, they were uh, rumored to be involved with, you know, the the Son and Sam killings and with the Manson family and stuff like that. I mean, there's it's definitely contested by some people, but this like weird cult that's kind of into like this like weird mixture of like Christianity and Satanism and New Age stuff that was big in the 60s counterculture. But um you know, there was also an heir to the Mellon fortune, William Mellon Hitchcock, who would be in Ward's circle. Mm. And uh, he would be mm-hmm. in Timothy Leary's scene. And he was, a, you know, uh, would help to bankroll no, the man. Brotherhood of Eternal Love. 
Okay, let me let me just say he is one of the uh, people who claims that he's going out with Patsy Morgan Dibbin when she's supposed to be across on the continent, and I don't think she's alive anymore. And what I wasn't mentioning about that, the, the in in one of or what I didn't mention on in the fourth article of the series that R. Dibbin writes about his satanic adventures, as I call, and I read through each of them on uh, my own channel on JohnnyVedmore.com. Uh, Johnny Vedmore um, on YouTube or or on on Rockfin or on JohnnyVedmore.com if you want to go there. Um, I, I do a read through of the, the these these this article, this fourth article, and he claims that Patsy Morgan Dibbin was taken by the devil himself, and the devil himself is Andre Gabor Tiahema Bozameni, who's um, a weird and a completely true, accurate, actual character, an Hungarian guy. Um, he's he's putting in internment camp during the war before beforehand. He's hanging around with all of the elites. He's he's photographed all around the place with really famous people. Really interesting character. Um, he goes on to work for Gendrasic Industries, which worked for the Nazis during the war, and um, they would make fighter parts, uh, fighter engine, uh, jet fighter engine parts, and he was uh, good at that. He was also an antique dealer like Hard Divin and an art stealer, a high-class art stealer. Um, and he was also um, a lawyer too uh, and worked on uh, probature um, for massive estates, for really, really big estates. And uh, Andre Gabor Bozameni to, to Hard Dibbin is the devil himself. He says he's part of the Brotherhood of Satan. He dies in 1957 and Hard Dibbin says all of this in 1961. When It's very interesting that when... Uh, Bosomeni's um uh probature is settled itself himself it goes to the Bahamas to be settled that's a very interesting thing I think because it does make he doesn't seem to have any um children or anything like that and he was a very weird looking he looks like a vampire I posted up a picture of him um on um twitter and the response is like wow that guy is like dracula whoa and he really is he's truly a, um a daunting looking character when he gets old he no longer he, he still looks kind of he's got this evil look about him and he's supposed to be this this head of uh one of the heads of the the brotherhood um of satan um oh I, why was i why was i mentioning this guy why was i mentioning this guy oh my god um but but yeah this is go on oh i was just saying um we got started by talking about william mellon hitchcock and how he was oh yeah yeah so 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 he was uh uh, was in league with a guy called frere and um with the uh, earl of greyville's estate and they were all linked with mellon hitchcock and they were all friends of mellon hitchcock and later on there's articles that state that patsy morgan dibbin is happy and alive with mellon hitchcock and they're thinking about getting married and then in the article it's like well we're probably going to get married actually we might not who knows we're probably not going to who knows and then these other stories about him being around and he seems like a really interesting character so i've only started scraping the surface with 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 when when i started off in journalism uh doing journalism i knew i had to start off by saying okay i've got to look at the real 
not the ethereal, not the 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 uh, imaginary, not the uh, religious, not the spiritual, not all of those things. I've got to look at the real to be able to understand what's going on in the world around me. And I'm at a point now where I can tackle some of these subjects and feel much more comfortable that it won't affect uh, how people view my own work because I. I I wouldn't have tackled, wanted to tackle, even though I, I couldn't help but to skirt by it with my own research when I looked into uh, uh, serial killers and the like. Um, and I, I've, one of my first major articles was on uh, Theresa May's father and his links to some very horrible people. And some of that ended up with me looking into a lot of um, uh, supposed Satanists during uh, the 60s, 70s and 80s in Britain. So it's always been leading around there. But I couldn't write anything like that at the uh, like anything to do with anything like that at the start because uh, you just ruin your name really quickly. It's got such a that's what a lot of the satanic panic was to do was to mean that people who looked into it had their uh, uh, profession eventually they, they would be looked down upon because they'd been writing satanic panic drama pieces rather than proper work um, but when you actually look back on it now you can see why people were so enthralled by it and I, I don't think Horace Dibbin was telling the truth about necessarily is satanist life i think it was all part of an operation it was not all part of an operation to seed that satanic narrative in there and i think once he worked out and i don't know when he worked that out it's probably about 1960 though um when he worked out that satanism was so sexy and sordid to people and people liked it was attracted to it he jumped on that bandwagon really quickly and all of his satanic stuff comes after 1960 all of the mentions of these things and all of the party styles all after he's already met mariella novotny who's really interested in reading lots of different books on spiritualism and of of different things he, that's even comes up in uh mariella novotny's own uh recount uh, recounting uh, and from quotes of hers uh that the first night they ever spent together after their wedding night on their wedding night when she got married to hard dibbin she was reading book um she didn't want to have sex and he was interested in having sex and she was reading a book she was insisting on reading a book and it was something spiritual in nature was the book so i think they all jumped on that bandwagon i think they were led to that bandwagon like a horse is led to water you know they they were looking for something that sold their own brand of sexy orgy of their own who they are the mystery behind them to entice people in for an operation and they were using that and it became convenient because people were attracted to it because people had been turned off uh, a lot of you can imagine a lot of people have had at this point bad um experiences with a priest or two uh, uh you know for whatever reason whether they've been bored to death or but uh, you know the, the other thing to death yeah, it, there was a yeah. lot of bad priests around at that at that time you know so so um 
I, I can imagine that and a lot more people went to church. Church attendance was much higher. Um, so you can imagine that people in their life don't necessarily have just one priest. They move home. They see multiple priests. And we all know there was a problem and is probably still a problem within the church um, uh, to do with covering up child abuse and stuff. So you can imagine that a lot of people were turned off the church. So, so it was easy to understand why people would be so intrigued and interested by Satanism. But I do think that there's that is another point where America and Britain align around the same time where there's an operation going on to uh, make people believe in things in the occult, practice the occult, um, worship things that will then take them out of any reasonable uh, dialogue and take them out of society in some way. I think that is a practice that the intelligence agents use uh, intelligence agencies used to divide people within society at a very fine level. Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely think that there's some of that. And I mean, just my personal opinion when it comes on to, because I mean, there's definitely people who get uh, too wrapped up into that and aren't looking at the real world things on the ground when you're trying to figure out the connections between different people. And I'd say that, you know, when you find these, you know, whether it be, you know, with some of this stuff involving involving Dibbin or whether it be with the Franklin cover up or with like Michael Aquino, who I mentioned earlier and, you know, being alleged to be involved with the Presidio child sex abuse stuff. I think that the the satanic panic is a, 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 a difficult subject to navigate because. I do think that there are people like Aquino who he was a true believer. He was involved in the church of Satan and then he broke away from that because I mean, they're basically atheists who just like the ascetics. He goes on and he finds the temple of set and is, you know, you know, doing real occult rituals and, and, and stuff like that. He's, he's writing books on this subject. I mean, I think that he was a true believer. And then you just also have some people. I mean, when you have these, rich people who've had just about every kind of experience that money can buy and they're bored, you know, I mean, yeah, putting on a bunch of eyes wide shut mask and having a big orgy or something might be one of the few things to get their heart beating for a little bit, you know, so then there's going to be people who are attracted to the aesthetic of it, um, aesthetics of it, um, not very aesthetic, the aesthetics of it. And um, then you also have people who are, I mean, I also think that with, you know, sometimes with this Satanist angle that it might be used by some of the perpetrators of these crimes also to try and discredit victims, because if you come forward and you say, you know, you know, there was a bunch of people in mask and they held me in a cage and there was, you know, candles and they were chanting or something. It's like, okay, this person's lost their mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, there's an interesting lady I did um, an article on in about 2017 called Barbara Houston. I think it's 2017, 2018. I went back through her family history like hundreds and hundreds of years because she's such an interesting, contrary character. Um, she was a barrister, for, a human rights barrister, um, and she started saying the most peculiar things after the Jimmy Savile case. She, she came out on Channel 4 and she did this um, interview 
interview um, on Channel 4 News where she stated that um, people like uh, Jimmy Savile and and the like should be able to have sex with 14-year-old girls or 13-year-old girls or, or however old, you know, very young. Um, and that it's society that's wrong. There's nothing actually should be legally wrong about it and all of these, and these guys are being persecuted. And of course, that causes a lot of people to be very angry and it caused the interview to be sensational uh unsensationalized but she argued uh on a point of human rights point now she loved to argue the whole family loved to argue historically for history uh her whole family were contrarious she had um a, in the 1700s there was um a uh member of her family who was with the popish rebels fighting on the side of the the catholics against the protestants when he himself was protestants even 10 years before his his uh mother and father's body had been dug up from the graveyard and hung upside down in an act of desecration towards the family um one of her ancestors had shot the maid in the back for no reason whatsoever spent time in the mental hospital and stuff but it was all throughout her, the history of the family there was these weird contrarious her father was a crazy contrarious just writing to the paper all the time saying the opposite of whatever was was popular at the time just really wanted to oh cause some to have anger and she picked that up and she went on um to cause loads of controversy with her statements some of her, her articles and she she wrote on um spiked uh, uh online news um platform and they they you know I, I like it it's like it's like a it makes you think about stuff but it's not ideology you want to follow but she said she used something very interesting now she this it's important i tell you who she is she is um, the cousin of someone who used to hang around with uh, a very famous politician whose name escapes me. You know, I don't know him very well, uh, but, but his name escapes me right now. It'll come back to me in just a second. Um, but she she's basically uh, linked in with people who were like the children of Profumo Affair. They're like the next generation that come from the Profumo affair. And she is linked in with some people who were really, oh, 10 years after Profumo, acting up and in parliament and being naughty and having gay sex orgies and all of this sort of stuff and taking it to a new level, well, 20 years after Profumo, really. And there's some really interesting. Uh, she she's around that set. She's related to those people. She's hanging around those people all the time. And during this interview where she's defending these paedophiles, she claims that the reason why that basically um, you can't believe most of the victims is that most of the victims want to say that they're satanic in some way and Satanism doesn't exist. So interesting. Et al ego she is uh right about what she says obviously it's a logical fallacy it's simple for us to see the most frustrating thing and i i've had this uh, I, i've been arguing with trolls online i'm such a, i'm so terrible with arguing with trolls online as soon as they start arguing with me i'm like all right then may as well just roll up my sleeves and have a go and uh and and i, I i've been arguing with some uh, um trolls online about this sort of thing you you 
really you logical fallacies they work for so many people that you can just do them and you can say them and people will believe you the majority of people will believe you and will take it for for granted and think in their head oh well that makes sense because if she does this then that means that he does this or something along those lines uh, and it's all wrong it's all wrong it's the wrong way to perceive things it's how most people get by tricking people they just use logical fallacies ben shapiro does i i, I mean i'm not a fan of ben shapiro i don't i don't really care if anybody out there is a fan you can watch what you like i listened to ben shapiro for about a year year and a half to understand his argument and to understand what he was saying and to understand why people hated him so much without just seeing one video of him and going i wanted to say okay if i want to criticize ben shapiro i should watch him for a while and so i did I listened to his podcast every day as I was walking to work in a hotel. Like I, wo- I was listening to podcasts with my eyes rolled up in my head most of the time. But, but you know, these uh, pe- people are really quick to criticize. They, they, they want to. They, they, they use arguments, fallacies, and like Shapiro u- uh, uses something. He uses just what aboutism. Um, oh, so and so does this. So, but what about them? They say this about us but what about them uh look at what they do and that doesn't make it right what you do and this is what they're doing constantly there's so many logical fallacies uh hanging around and this is used a lot within um the satanic panic sort of and the real Satan, because this is the thing satanic panic can only be fueled if there feels like there's a real threat so to invest time in creating the church of satanism whether they're intelligence agency uh aligned people who are who are boosting up or whether they just like satanism uh, if it's easy for them to find investment in in church of satanism church of satanism shall rise and then if it's convenient for the authorities to scare people about such things and so put it all over on the tv documentaries about satanists will suddenly come to to fruition and people will see more and will believe that they're more uh, prevalent than they actually are because uh, in my experience of talking to loads of different people there's not many satanists in the world there's not many satanists a very really small amount and usually they're nuts usually they they they're, they're completely off their rocker in some other way but those that's what in a sense satanism is isn't it it's chaos and chaos of the mind breeds something that looks probably identical to Satanism anyway. And so why not, when you've got all of that uh, behavior manifesting out of you, why wouldn't you become a Satanist? Because it seems that that would be most fitting and would be like a good excuse for the reason you do everything. So I think that's part of the reason why Satanism during that time rose. I think there's also something else about um, uh, that period the this generation that had come from the war were really hard people they were really tough people like hard dibbing you know they 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 every day was their last uh going through the cold war every day was their last they dragged up their children with fear and their children did not care anymore could not be more scared could not be more beaten could not be more abused and went out and rejected society and rejected establishment uh, and establishment arianism is uh, exemplified by the 
traditional church in whichever denomination you've got you know these people who don't want to be anti-establishment will see those things and say ah i will go to the most anti-establishment place i can now for me when i was young i didn't need to go to satanism to do that i just went to the to the the borders of satanism which was heavy metal and punk (laughs) but they're very close to to that area where it's the disgruntlement with establishment so i think there was so much in um the rise of satanism within our society uh also it's it's just so cool i i from someone who isn't a satanist you can see from the outside everything's cool it's the best pr job you got around you wear black and red you walk around in sunglasses you worship the dark lord and you play guitar really well it is a gift given by satan you know all of that is really fantastic pr isn't it is you know you could see why people chose if you're going to choose anything and with hod divin you can say that as well he was Plymouth Brethren, extremely strict, but kind of open to secret societies and the way uh, how to manipulate society behind the scenes, how to influence. That's where Plymouth Brethren taught Hod Dibbin, and Hod Dibbin rejected the church. And so to project out Satanism, whether he was or wasn't, my opinion I've made clear, but he could very well be because I think Satanism is, a lot of Satanists do say this not religious thing. It's an anti-establishment thing. Um, but a lot of other Satanists will say, well, they're not real Satanists, then, are they? Yeah. Well, and I just think that the occult in general, whether we be talking about, you know, Satanism or like Crowley's Thelema or uh, anything. I mean, there's so many, you know, you know, pick your variety of, of the occult or whatever. But I think it's always been of an interest to the elites of society for a certain reason. And the reason is because Mm -hmm. it is exclusive and there's an inner circle and an outer circle. And obviously, since they're the ones with the money and the power, they will be in the inner circle. And all those peons below are on the outer circle. And I mean, so, I mean, you look. go ahead. In that sense, in that sense, Hod Dibbin's parties are like uh, the manifestation of that idea that they are special, they are above, and they can do whatever they want, and they have the mask, and it's all satanic themed, and it's satanic themed for a reason. A lot of the people who are going there want to believe in that and want to be anti-establishment. There's other people who want to hate God, and there's other people who want to hate themselves. Some of these people were treated really. One of the things I discovered a lot going through history is that people in general um, have, uh, during this period, have had a really rough life. And uh, uh, the different, you know, you've got different forms of abuse. You've got neglect, you've got physical abuse, you've got psychological abuse, you've got sexual abuse. Those are the four main forms of abuse. And people at that, living through that time, had suffered at least one, if not more, of those abuses from really, really, really angry parents who were angered by their experiences that they were never able to deal with from the years before which were completely and utterly beyond comprehension to us today i think breaking like having a war helps these biggest uh, like the elite the the people in charge to to create these breakable generations where they can implant and seed information in because uh, after the world war that generation was so 
thick and hard that they really pushed down on the next generation yet didn't explain why didn't tell them the truths wanted to hide loads of things that they did and other people did and change and it messes with your brain so you get this like this such cycles in human existence in how we interact with each other there's these fantastic cycles that repeat over and over again and and wars help be able to organize those cycles some people might say they're the expression at the end of a cycle maybe but that that is true as well once one of these cycles comes to an end and they can't control it they seem to like to go into a war footing everybody the whole generation gets burnt and then the next generation is the one who's going to go out and and say what's happening what is truth and then they can be implanted with truth again and once they believe that certain truth whatever it may be they'll do the same thing eventually neck down the line they'll be their part of the next cycle which will end in the same way like uh, a, a clear all generation completely psychologically disturb people and i felt that when i researched the 50s and the 60s with all of the nuclear threat cold war where uh, one way one hour away from death nearly one minute away from death nearly all of the time um we, we have to worry about everything all of the time they were so close to the end days and this just ruined and the war had already psychologically ruined i think that behavior manifested itself because the war had already ruined the previous generation had turned them into these people who were functionally evil some like people like kissinger fritz kramer people like that they did not see society as we see society they were not friends to our society they were people who wanted to destroy and crush wanted to show they were more powerful than another set of people and their way was the best way and if you do not follow them you get crushed which was the same thing they were fighting against in the war and so on and so forth past every war through history that is controlled and manipulated by a fantastically uh, a, a very slim amount of the same families over and over again people don't understand that works on every level when you were talking at the beginning that i done work on klaus schwab i went back through his ancestry and it's like well klaus schwab's this big dictator like guy who's trying to uh, like spread this uh transhumanist uh futurist uh, world upon us a dystopia with mega cities and you own nothing and you'd be happy and you go back and his father worked for a nazi model company a guy called eugen schwab who worked for escher vice he was the managing director top person in the ravensburg branch where they uh, helped try and uh make the parts to enrich uranium for the nazi atomic bomb program so it's like you see a bad person you go back in history and you discover more bad people uh, there's 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 something you do with information once you learn how genetics works in behaviorally how it expresses behaviorally over time over generations once you've studied enough groups family groups and you go back and you see the same behavior manifest over and over again in at least one of each generation of that member of that family um you see the same sort of behaviors express themselves and and manifest in the same same way and you see the same thing happen throughout history you kind of have this feeling that these people are in charge for a reason they they took charge a long time ago well before their own lives they took they were a, they're a genetic genetic trait that makes them more powerful in the dynamic 
that exists until the dynamic changes and a lot of uh, years down the line a lot of these families will say that they will say okay we're in this position because all of our ancestors shared this genes and we were these fantastic people and all of this different stuff but in actual fact they're just each time each generation trying to work out how to keep their big lot that they've got and they know that they've got the ability to do it genetically because it's been proven throughout history now that gives you self-confidence so maybe that's all it is maybe it's most of it is just the self-confidence of your previous generations but you see it in people who don't know what their ancestors did the same behaviors manifest so bill gates you see him out in the world he looks like he's cooing the world health at the time when health is the biggest thing that that makes everything tick on a global scale and pushes everybody to do stuff time of pandemics that can lock down almost every person on earth this time bill gates rise now if you go back into his history you'll discover that bill gates's uh, uh ancestors mar- uh, march next to the coffin the coffin of william um uh, henry the eighth uh the the fat king um and had been uh, sirs all the way down sir jeffrey gates the first sir jeffrey gates the second sir jeffrey gates the third sir jeffrey gates the fourth all ancestors uh and uh, a, a few of them get their head chopped off when mary comes to power and they flee eventually the family fee- flee over to uh america and and make life in america in rhode island at the time when 90 percent of the slave trade all around the world will go was going through rhode island so you can imagine what they were doing you can imagine what these people are doing as soon as you go back through their family histories you see it's the same thing we we're basically the same people as our fathers we uh, when as a as a man we're basically the same as a woman you're basically the same person as your mother you'll have loads of things that will happen to you in your life but you if you appropriate if you if you have a a, a good fa- sized family that your mother will keep existing down and you will keep existing and you will become the mother and the same forefathers you know we are we are just a strand of genetics that really expresses itself in the same way all throughout uh time and we don't we we disdain we have disdain for things that look like us it's really weird we look back in our family history and if we see some people we're like oh i'm so much like them i love them but then other people are like oh god I'm, i'm glad i'm not like them but when you actually analyze it you're exactly like them because we're all family, we're all, we, we've all got that in us, um, and it expresses, and it's over time. I think th- this satanic panic, people who are influenced by it, um, people who are likely to uh, be involved in intelligence, all of these different people, are usually from highbrow families from the past, and they're trying, they're the next generation, struggling to keep that genetic strand at its wealth level. Because that's the type of thinking that's going on. That's the type of connection that's going on. It's really weak. And it happens all around us. All around. So this this whole family history, this whole idea that people um, from rich families and wealthy families rule for years and years and years. Yes. Yes. It's true. It's not even a conspiracy. They know it. We know it. They say they, they, they pay people to act like it's not so and to train other people to say it's not so. And then they believe it, but they know deep down. Everyone knows. This is all just it's family affair all the way. You are your ancestors. 
face of your father looking in the mirror constantly. Well, and so many of them are interested in eugenics and they want to keep it inside the family. So sometimes a few generations down the line, they get a little bit squirrely, to say the least, um, you know. But I mean, they, they a lot of these, you know, families and stuff who are behind it, they recognize the importance of family. And they're, you know, certainly trying to pass on the trade and they also pass along their abuse because a lot of the times abuse is intergenerational and you know i mean trauma is one of the best forms of mind control and i mean you know i mean you look around the world and there's a lot of trauma-based mind control but to bring it back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier um yeah the the melon uh, william melon hitchcock who i was talking about earlier he was a uh, he, he was an interesting guy he would actually go on to share a flat with a former oss guy who would be a Kroll industrial espionage agent. Um, oh, what's his name? Thomas Corbally. C- oh, he's, he's going to be in the, uh, he's literally going to be in the next black hand. So uh, Tom Corbally is one of the most interesting figures uh, I could possibly come across in life. I mean, these guys are just unbelievable, aren't they? Uh, and Th- Thomas Corbally, I was talking about him without his name on a Grand Theft uh, World podcast uh, with Richard Grove and Tony Meyer. And I was um, I-, I was saying that, that um, I couldn't remember his name then. It's, it's like like it happens. It, it, things go out of your your your, your brain. Uh, you got so much. Uh, you got so much different information constantly having to be put in there. I, I don't even know how it stays in because because it pops out all over the place. It's like terrible. Um, but yeah, he is one of the most interesting characters. And I was on the the, the, the their podcast, and I was I made a mistake because I had read this fantastic article. I'm sure you've read the article as well it's a long one that goes through his his life it really really is is, is a fantastic piece of work i really i it was it's really rare that i come across a journalist that is like writes a bit like me and i'm like oh i love this oh it's like listening to me write something um tom corbley was someone who uh during the war was sent into rooms to shoot people uh to you know um you, you line up a, they they gave an example of lining up a group of people and tom corbley comes in and says uh to someone no you're going to do what we want you to do and they say no i'm not going to do it and then he shoots someone and he says yes you're going to do it and they go okay i will do it that was tom corbley who's like a brutal guy and he used to jump around on the ships and he told later on he told uh james cameron about his time jumping um aboard the ships in uh when he was younger um and he was a very naughty boy when he was in his teenage years and he reckoned that james cameron then went off and wrote titanic and made jack the famous character who jumps upon all of the ships and is and he was based on thomas corbley or at least that's what legend now says and in that article they said um a catch me if you can lifestyle and because of the leonardo dicaprio reference it it, it caught me off and I, I i had this feeling that both movies were connected to them but it's not it was just uh it was just the one tom corbley is such an interesting figure i found this fantastic newspaper article which is just like who's tom corbley this guy look everybody's here and they're having such the greatest time and tom corbley was like 
I, somewhere in between one of the most fantastically interesting men in the world and maybe one of the most evil men in the world like sinister evil cold-hearted um but in a way that was like beautiful to look at from the outside uh the few pictures of him when he's younger he looks like a charmer um and yeah I, i'm gonna be writing about tom corbley um he's the crawl now that's a, a a business enterprise that completely blows my mind. That's uh, they, <laughs> yeah, they are yeah they are a special group of people. Like that's when things got really filthy. You know, you're, you're following the entire. I'm I'm currently in like the early sixties, um, but I I think I think I'm going to continue wandering eventually. Um, throughout the time i mean i can't help having my eyes on james goldsmith um he comes up so much in so many different investigations like links to him and to his influence he was uh, a, a, such an influential guy uh, especially now even in britain even on a, a small level like there's little bits and bobs uh, uh, there's um uh nicholas soames who's a grandson of uh, winston churchill and rupert soames's brother um and one of them is uh, i think it's nicholas soames is it nicholas soames or is it rupert rupert soames is the um the, the head of circo and circo is like this big company with very big uh, uh, ties to really weird families and etc um uh, but it's one of the biggest employers in the uk gets lots of government contract um and they, they he made his uh he cut his cloth um being jimmy goldsmith's uh, personal assistant um and the, the people who who were around him were really really some of the biggest movers and shakers on earth and the claremont club and all of that stuff um that that is a direction i'm going to eventually um but as i do with all my articles i want to find the stuff that hasn't necessarily been uh resurfaced or found before isn't in the consciousness of modern day what people are afraid about and what what hurts so much in journalism when you watch it and you read newspapers is that lots of people don't know basic stuff really basic stuff so if you've studied um post-war world up until 1960 you would know that everybody's completely terrified of nuclear attack and it, you would know that they got through that uh, and came out the other side and worked out uh, the mutually assured destruction would mean that people would be less likely and all of the the other things uh, all the safety measures would less likely to, to launch nu nuclear attack and then it got kind of to the point where it was like tesla's death ray no one's going to fire the button they're just all going to point it maybe we could do limited warfare so kissinger invents limited warfare and they say if we can convince the russians to uh, only do a couple of tiny nukes we'll do some tiny nukes and then we can agree on that and we can that can be the limit to our warfare you know that can be the the but you've got to agree and eventually they did agree but no one's firing nukes you don't need to by the time we got to the 90s and noughties it was like well we've done we've done enough of them haven't they they do like thousands they, they've tried they, they set off thousands of nukes I've, i i um there's a simulation i sped it up and put it on uh on on uh my my, my twitter that is a simulation of all the nuclear bombs that have gone off um 
and it's just unbelievable how many these people were involved in some of the biggest stuff biggest decisions they they were from a really strange group of people and from from the time all of this formed to the time of like claremont club and and the 1970s uh london set there was something really strange going on in the capital cities that includes london that includes uh washington new york very much so new york is a very weird place um there's so much to be dug up uh and when you do you come across these characters characters like tom corbley that no one really knows about that horace dibbon that no one really knows about even at the time when they were reporting on marielle novotny being smuggled out of america after being caught in uh, apparently in jfk's bedchamber they, they do like this sting operation and they're like oh we got to get it out of here really quickly because this is really awkward and we don't want to do this really so the cia and fbi work together to smuggle her out under a false name um and and horace dibbon's always in the background and then she was she was met at the station by her mother constance capes and her, her, her husband horace dibbon antiques dealer um and and the, he's always there but no one knows the characters and knows the things i want to bring out in the articles those are the things i want to find i want to go and look at claremont set and find the characters that make you go oh my god look at that look at that because that's what we're, that's what draws people in to learning about stuff that really you don't want to learn about you don't want to learn about corruption sadness horrible people doing nasty things uh sexual perversion you don't want to read about all of these things um but once you once you link them all uh together within these really interesting characters it brings in people who can then be woken up to what the world really looks like and now whether it looks like the vision you have or whether it looks like the vision I have at the end of that process, that's up to the individual. Um, and I love being part of that process of finding, finding the hidden gems from the past, the people. Yeah. Like I say, sorry, I got so excited when you said Tom Corbley. So excited. Oh, no, no. And I mean, he would end up playing a big factor, you know, later because I mean, Ward would end up telling Hitchcock and Corbley about all the stuff was that was going on. And then Hitchcock would actually go, uh, you know, the melon boy would go tell his uncle who was this OSS man named David Bruce, you know, I mean, so Mm -hmm. there's all these kinds of, you know, interesting connections to, and I mean, I mean, when we're talking about Ward, you know, I mean, he, who had ties with Astor. I mean, his, the Astor family was instrumental in the creation of the round table network and the council on foreign relations yep. and, and all this. So, I mean, you just have all these interesting, and I mean, this is honestly just scratching the surface, our conversation at some of these different intelligence ties. I mean, this is stuff that ends up going, I mean, when we're talking about Corbally, he had connections to JFK, to the house of Saud, to Roy Cohn, mm-hmm. who was doing his own sexual blackmail operation, yeah, yeah. escapades and stuff. So, I mean, this, you know, it, the, the tentacles go far and wide and it can almost, you know, rack one's brain to think about the implications of all these weird connections and stuff. But, and, you know, how much of it is just if they're all running in the same circles, how much of it is 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 meaningful. But anyhow, I guess, you know, Maybe the last question before we stop the recording and then you and I can chat for a second after that is, 
what can, you know, I mean, I, I'd love to, but I know that you're going to get into it later on and, you know, your article series and stuff. But I mean, uh, what are some of the things that my audience, you know, because I'm heavily encouraging everybody go check out the article series up on Unlimited Hangout, Black Hand by Johnny Vedmore. Um, and I think that you're about to get into a lot more interesting stuff and like, you know, it's really going to start ramping up, but I mean, you know, what can we maybe expect without, you know, giving away too much of what's to come from, uh, the rest of your article series, because I've been thoroughly enjoying it so far and I'm excited for the rest of it. Well, I, 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 I wanted to be open to the idea that I start a project off where I, I, I could see the beginning. 1954 is really the beginning, even though that uh, to tell the stories of everybody, you have to go back further in time. Really, the start is Esmeralda's barn. Um, but there's, there's, there's actually um, a whole load of things that happen before that that are extremely interesting that I want to eventually get back to uh, maybe within another um, episode. And the next stages is about unpacking the reporting around a lot of the perfumo. Now I I need to, to go into explaining the characters, what happens, but what I really want people to understand is how this all got presented to people and once you put all of the characters together you realize there's a lot of bs in how the the perfumo affair unfolds and how the next really in a sense this whole um series uh the the i'm probably gonna write about eight of them initially and then if i write more it may be in book form um and go back earlier and go all of the way through but I really wanted people to uh, understand the crazy world of Horace Dibbin. And people uh, can't understand the crazy world of Horace Dibbin without understanding everything surrounding Horace Dibbin. And so this sort of... Uh, Horace Dibbin will be now a r- running along through this uh through the theme of this of course uh through through the the rest of this uh series because he's an extremely important character always in the background but i want people to start looking at the other angles to the perfumer affair the other people involved that aren't so uh, mentioned and bring to light uh new information and i tried to do this with you know i i know that the I, I looked around for ages trying to find any evidence of people who knew who anything about um, Mariella Novotny's mum. And it took me ages and ages uh, to discover Constance Capes. And, and then it, then I, I found out all about her, like, uh, interesting interaction with a fraudster who used multiple names back in the day. And that story would have been told throughout time. And that kind of... Uh, propelled Mariella Novotny to become I think the woman she was with multiple names and 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 being a bit of a, a fraudster and instantly getting into stuff and this is the end of an era this is going into the gangster world the gangsters are taking over these nightclubs and everything's about to get seedy and deadly really quick so what I want people to to eventually see is how this sort of like um fantastical enterprise all fell apart it leads 
And I could tell you where it leads already. It leads to Mariella Novotny drowning in jelly, if you would believe that. She died drowning in jelly. I don't know how many stories in the world end with Mariella Novotny drowning in jelly, but I tell you, you should be told at the beginning that that's where it's going to go at the end. Because uh, this is a story about some really quirky, crazy characters and an end of an era. After this era, everything gets taken over and completely and utterly clamped down by the big intelligence services. People like Jimmy Goldsmith and other people come in to a part own and part run clubs. And and the next the next phase, Black Hand Two, maybe um, will be the seventies and how that works out because that really is then to take over the financial systems through nightclubs and uh, that's a really interesting place to go to with some really much more sinister everybody gets less funny and quirky in the 70s and 80s everything gets less funny and quirky it all becomes all sinister and horrible abusive and um in the earliest mention this is an example for you as well in the earliest mention of um uh, and i'm sorry if i've skirted around what the next few episodes of the black ant series will contain in detail no that's um, fine <laughs> which, which, which i i hope you understand that i i i've done i don't mean to, to absolutely you, i was being I, a little I, bit I, naughty I, asking that question in the first place you, no that's all right do, do you know there's there's the first the first article where jeffrey epstein is mentioned the first time he's mentioned is at with jimmy goldsmith at his party and lots of people don't know how influential this man was james goldsmith was on the world and what he what he acted like and how he uh he went he ended up you know he would go on tv and he would say things directly to people he was a he was not a nice guy he didn't hang around with very nice people they were quirky but they were quirky in a different way to hod dibbin and stephen ward and this playful era that was dying and that's what i'm going to explain in the last of this black hand series is this wonderful world of quirky sexual stuff died with Stephen Ward. That was a very significant moment in history and everybody uh, started to act very differently very quickly and then eventually all of them went away, were taken over by other things. Horace Dibbing goes out of the limelight completely. Marielle Novotny goes into the shadows. They come out in about late 70s. They have a little bit of a court case where they deny who they are in court. <laughs> it's quite hilarious. Um, and, you know, there's it's a real sad affair. It's a real sad affair. Marielle Novotny's and, uh, life was a real sad affair. Horace Dibbing's life is legendary. Yet they were married. And they, you know, she would spend the rest of her life with him, but it would be a very short time. Yeah, no, I no, think no, Horace Dibbon 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 what a married to Dibbon, then goes on to get in JFK's bed, and then eventually mm-hmm. drowns in jelly. That's the only story I know of <laughs> that you know plays out that way. So um, I'll be interested yeah. to, to hear the end of that, and I'll be interested to see kind of this new more sinister crowd that comes in to fill the already you know sinister shoes of 
Stephen Ward and Dibbon and all these people. So I'm greatly looking forward to that. Now, I'll talk to you for just a second after we stop recording here. But just for my fans, one last time, where can they find your work, whether it be this Black Hand stuff or all the other great work that you've done over the years? Awesome. Well, I am, of course, writing on Unlimited Hangout with Whitney Webb. Um, Whitney Webb's also my partner, so it's a bit of a cheat, isn't it? Uh, but um, anyway, I, I got my Schwab series up there, which has done extremely well. Uh, it's extremely interesting. It's worth a read. That gets you into understanding what I like to do as well. I like to go throughout history. It doesn't have to be just family history. I like to go out through, throughout history, and I like to uh, uh, find the information that is no longer there. And is extremely relevant to understanding the cycle we are in now um so i i I write on unlimited hangout um i have my own site called johnnyvedmore.com which is really central to to finding a lot of my work uh, around various places i have fungi monkey fungi monkey dot com um that is uh mainly media but i do loads of interviews talk about a range of subjects i do a show called Newshound. that's my baby at the moment i like it because i go around the um news archives really loads i, I i'm constantly looking in newspapers from the past so i now uh pick a range of newspapers about a subject and i read out some really choice articles throughout history um now some of it i i mean i i did one of those that got banned on youtube in five minutes uh it called the anti-vaccinators and that was a fantastic uh <laughs> Oh my God, that was a fantastic, because uh, it was just me reading out people uh, throughout history who were um, uh, reporting on anti-vaccine people. So it was pro-vaccine people reporting, and I was banned for medical misinformation for reporting on what people who ban you for medical misinformation report. So I, it was it was a very, I, you know, I really like Newshound. It allows me to, to go through history and look at certain things a bit quirky now i've run these alongside black hand series so each of the black hand series has a news hound where the first one i actually go around london and go to the sites of esmeralda's uh nightclubs and talk about it a bit there um uh in in the rest of them is the normal format of the show where i go through the newspapers and the source articles that i use in the series so i like people to understand where i'm getting this information from and to understand where information comes from where people like me find information from so it's a really good like um companion piece and it Newshound is such a, a I'm I'm really enjoying work. I also do auditing work, do loads of other things. I'm a jack of all trades, more so a musician. Um, I got a few albums out and stuff. Uh, you can find me on YouTube and Amazon and all of that sort of stuff and all of those big horrible uh, dystopian companies. Um, and thanks for take it like reading and listening to any of my stuff i really appreciate it i just just enjoy researching and doing loads of stuff and and it's it, people like you put me out to a new audience where i can say hello i'm johnny vedmore uh, i'm addicted to history and culture and all of that junk and uh, if you do want to join me come over and i am interactive i will talk to you and i will i will be happy to to respond to you if you have any any questions so thanks for having me on oh yeah thanks for coming on everyone's gonna really really enjoy this and if you do enjoy it 
Make sure to go check out Johnny Bedmore's stuff. You can leave a review if you're using Spotify or Apple Podcasts to listen to this. But anyhow, I will talk to you guys all soon.